today we're going to look at verses 1 to 19, which is really about the, the implication of the re- reality of the resurrection. What are the implications of this? <clears throat> Next week, probably one of the most theologically dense sections of Scripture in the whole book, to be honest with you, is verse 20 to 49. We're going to talk about the doctrine of the resurrection. It's pretty theological. Um, and then at the very end, verses 50 to 58, is just this mystery of our, bodil- our bodily change in the resurrection that's coming. Paul says, I, I, behold a mystery, I tell you what it's going to all be like. So we're going to try to break it up in three sections for your maturing and your growing with me in it. But let me ask you to stand and we'll read the, verse, the first 19 verses of this cardinal chapter in all of the Bible about the meaning of the resurrection. Paul writes, he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in according with the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, Then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because he, we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who've fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people, the most to be pitied. Midway through the week, I texted a family, friend, text train group, and I had Mr. T on it, and it just was a, me, uh, you know, a gif. It says, pity the fool. And I said, I dare you, I have a prize for the per- person that guesses which sermon text I'm preaching. And somebody said the whole New Testament, the whole of 1 Corinthians. Pity the fool who in this life only thinks that they're going to be resurrected in Jesus if it's not true. And this is a powerful word of God for us today. Let me pray and then we'll get into it. Father, help us. We don't want to be fools believing in something that's not true, but if it's true, we don't want to be fools who deny its implication in our lives. So would you help us on this Lord's Day? Would this be bigger than any other thing we could possibly be thinking or talking about? And would it hold us? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So there's a question that I want to propose to you as a really helpful question in almost every situation if you want to grow in wisdom and how to approach a situation. The question is this. 
Have you considered the implication of that? Have you considered the implication of what you just did? Of what you're thinking? Of how you chose to handle that situation? Have you considered its implications? A very important question for basic things all the way to big worldview cultural issues. For example, if you choose to do something with your time, what's the implication of that? It means you can't do something else with that same amount of time. Opportunity cost. It's not going to work. That's just simple. Or if I treat a family member in a certain way because I feel justified because of the way they've wounded me or they've, they've not performed in a way that we say we're going to perform as Powell's, and I handle it in a certain way, I have to live with the implications of how I chose to handle that situation. And one of the things as we mature in Christ is to realize that most times there's other ways we could have responded to the same situation. Do I realize the implications of how I chose to respond? I mean, think of this, social media. What are the long-term implications for your heart if you have not realized anymore how easy it is to spin your public persona for the world around you and not show them the parts of you that you should be showing them? but you share so much with them that they think they know you. What are the implications of that? What is that actually doing in, in the realm of society? What is it doing in the realm of your heart? Especially if they respond in such a way as to affirm who they think you are. What are the implications? I, I, I have a list of things <laughs> that I don't want to get into because you will think the sermon's about those things, but how about some big social cultural issues? What are the implications of critical race theory? What are the implications of intersectionality? If I walk into a room as an upper middle class, Caucasian, master's degree, uh, non-immigrant person, and I walk into a room and there's a person who is a minority in all the other intersections we have, and I haven't even met this person yet, but I walk into the room and there are intersections of oppression and victimization that I don't even know about. What can I do about that? What are the implications of many of our positions in society? It's a great question. It's a huge question. And here's what Paul wants us to do today. And he wants the church at Corinth to do is he wants them to say, what are the implications of your Christianity? You know, what, what are the implications of believing that God is absolutely sovereign over all things and his providence is for our good no matter what it is if we're his? What are the implications of believing he's sovereign over all things, but there's evil in the world, and yet he's not the author of evil? What are the implications of that moment by moment in your life? And we're not going to go down that path. That's a Christianity central tenet for sure. But Paul says, I want to talk to you about the implications of what's at the center of the center of the center of Christianity, the resurrection of Jesus. And I want you to think about this letter that he's written to the church at Corinth. Remember, they've got all these concerns they've written to him about. And he's concerned about their division and, all, and I follow Paul and I follow Apollos and he's concerned about all sorts of things and they're concerned about all sorts of things. But how does he choose to end the letter? He basically says, never mind all of your concerns. Never mind all the things I've written to you about. Never mind all the things you've written to me about. Have you considered and do you live your life out of the implication of the resurrection being in the center or it not being anything at all? That's where we end this whole letter. If the resurrection happened, if it is preached and it is believed, what are the implications? If it did not happen, 
What are the implications? So that's what we're going to look at today. So uh, I don't have in front of me the exact outline I sent you, but I'm going to change just the verses, I think, of the first outline point. The resurrection is central. And I think that really is the message of verses 1 through 4, not just verse 1 and 2, but the resurrection is central. How central is it? Well, I want you to ask this question with me. Um, Can a person be a Christian and not believe in the resurrection of Jesus? Can a person be a Christian and believe he came, believe he lived righteously, believe that he died sacrificially as a great example? Can they be a Christian if they do not believe the resurrection happened? And I will tell you that that's what Paul is addressing in Corinth. Look in verse 12. Some of you are saying that there's no resurrection. This is happening inside the church of Corinth. Some of you who claim to be Christians are saying that Christ was not resurrected. Can they be Christian? We have to understand this book that we've been studying is really was written around 20 years after all the events of the cross itself. 20 years is all. And at that time, they had no dominant worldview that would have any place for the resurrection as it happened in Christ. So, for example, Greeks in first century Corinth, the secular Greek, just the average secular Greek, would believe that the soul and the spirit were good, but the body was evil. So, therefore, to a secular Greek, resurrection would not only be impossible, but it would be undesirable. In fact, what they wanted was to be rid of the body completely so they can go to the realm of spirit and soul. Now, to a Jewish person in the same day and age, Jews did believe that a resurrection was coming, but see, they would believe that a resurrection was going to come for all the righteous on the last day all at once when God redeemed all things. They had no place in Orthodox Judaism for one man being resurrected in the middle of history while all the rest of the world had the markings of decay continuing. So understand that in the day Paul was writing, to the Greeks, resurrection would be impossible and undesirable. To the Jews, resurrection would be absurd and unorthodox. No wonder people wrestled with it in this church. But here's what Paul says. There is only one gospel for Jew and for Greek, and the resurrection is in the absolute center of it. He says, this gospel, it must be preached and believed. One of the things Pastor Bill and AJ and I noticed in our study a few weeks ago of this is that in these 19 verses, over and over, the words, a word associated with preaching and a word associated with believing are paired together in the same verse. This is what's supposed to be preached and received, preached and believed. So it's in verse one, I preached, you received. Verse two, I preached unless you don't hold fast to what you believed. Verse 11, we preached, you believed. Verse 12, Christ proclaimed as resurrected. How can some of you not receive this? Verse 14, if Christ is not raised, our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. So over and over in these 19 verses, the declaration of the resurrection and the receiving of that is what Paul calls the gospel. What is it? Well, it's Christ, it's his life, it's his suffering, it's his death, it's his resurrection. That's what he says there in the first four verses. Very simple. I delivered of first importance what I received. Christ came. Christ died. Christ was in the grave. Christ is resurrected. All according to scripture, this is the gospel. That's what Paul says. We can think of Old Testament texts. We could think of the, the, the entirety of the law, the prophets, the Psalms. That's what Jesus said in Luke 24. He said, you should have known it all pointed to me. But if I had to just grab a few just to give examples, how about Isaiah 53? 
God's going to send the chief servant, and when he comes, he's not going to be received for who he is. He's going to be abused and rejected, not just because people don't understand who he is, but because God's going to put his wrath. God the Father subjected him to it, so he's the wrath-bearing servant. That's Isaiah 53. What prophecy? We already read from Psalm 16. I'll point to it a second in a minute, a little bit more, but Psalm 16, David, the king, wrote and said, there's a king who's not going to see the corruption of his body's decay. And, and Peter's going to say that it couldn't have been David he was talking about because David's in the grave. According to Scripture, Jesus is the gospel. His life, his cross, his death, his resurrection. And the resurrection is in the center of it. Here's how I'd ask you to think about it. The resurrection is the linchpin. All the other things that the whole Bible says are true, they, they become untrue if the resurrection didn't happen. It's the linchpin. Everything falls apart. There is no other good news part of the gospel without the resurrection. That's what Paul says. So think, think with me of the famous quote from Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. He says this. He says, you know, I want to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. They say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Lewis says, this is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. Let, let me go further than that. A man who said, I am the resurrection and the life. A man who said, believe in me and you'll live eternally. Lewis continues, he says, he would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says, I'm a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, he was who he said he was, proven by his own resurrection, or he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him, you can kill him as a demon, or you fall at his feet and you call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his merely being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us, says C.S. Lewis. What a, what a quote. That's what Paul's saying here. There is only one gospel. Christ, his life, his cross, his grave, his resurrection, all according to scripture. And there is no good news in any of those components without the resurrection proving it all to be true. It's central. The resurrection verifies he was who he said he was. So that's how the text starts. It's, it's central. But then we have to ask the question, is it true historically then? And that's where Paul goes next. Yes, he says, it is absolute, verses 5 to 11. He says, Christ was raised, and then Christ appeared, and there were witnesses. It's absolute in its historicity. Remember, he said, first he appeared to Cephas and to Peter, then to the twelve. Remember with me how the disciples were broken and scared after the cross? Remember they ran away, and they hid in a dark room and a closed, behind a closed door, and Jesus appeared to them, and We'll come back to this later, but do you remember what he said first? Peace be with you. Hold that thought. He appears to them. Then he says to them, I'm alive. I want you to wait on the Holy Spirit that I'll send. He sends the Holy Spirit. We have the testimony of that in Acts chapter 2. Tongues of fire come down. People think that they're drunk as they're declaring the glory of God in languages they don't know. Peter stands up and gives the first New Testament sermon. He says, no, these, this, they're not drunk. The Holy Spirit has come as Jesus said he would come and you need to understand that all that's happened with Jesus of Nazareth, this is the definitive plan of God. 
But then Peter goes further in his sermon. He says, you need to understand something. You did this. That's what he says there in Jerusalem. You killed him. The one whom God revealed in all of his glory, you killed him. But the verse I want to point to in Acts chapter 2 that matters today is Peter looks at this group of people that don't believe in the gospel and he says, you did this, but this Jesus God raised up and of that we're all witnesses. Think about what Peter does. He looks to a crowd and he is so confident in how visible the resurrection of Jesus is that he looks to a bunch of skeptical doubters and he says, you saw it with me. We all witnessed this. Now we know that plenty of doubters witnessed the resurrection, don't we? Think with me in Matthew 28. Did not the chief priests say to the guards, we understand the tomb is empty, but we'll pay you money to tell people that someone came and stole the body. You saw a body in the tomb. You were guarding it well, and you didn't leave it. And now it's empty. We'll pay you to give another version of the story. Plenty of doubters witnessed the resurrection. That's what we read in Acts chapter 2. And then when Peter stands and preaches, it's pretty cool. He does the same thing Paul says here. He says, it's not just that you saw it. It was according to the scriptures and you know it. And so what does Peter do in his first sermon? He, he uses Acts 16, which we read this morning and I've already mentioned. King David said there'd be a king who'd live forever. The holy one that would not see decay. It couldn't be David talking about himself. And yet David's David. He's the king of kings that we all thought was going to be the one that ushered in God's kingdom. But it's not David because he's in the ground. That's what Paul says here. He says, there were plenty of witnesses and you all should have known because it was in accordance with the scriptures. Paul goes on in our passage. He says, you know, after Peter and the 12, then Jesus appeared to 500. Paul says, some are still alive. Now, we don't know when this was, but what's his point? 20 years later, go ask them. That's his point. Go ask them. Verification in a culture that valued oral testimony would not be a problem. That's what Paul's saying in the letter of 1 Corinthians. Go ask them. Now, I want you to think with me. I'm 43 years old, so 20 plus years ago I was in college. If one of my kids hears one of those stories that I'm embarrassed to have others tell about me of what I did in college, you know, Dad, did that really happen? Dad, did you really run onto a conference championship basketball court in a game that you thought was over? And did you really jump into the arms of the star at Carson Newman and celebrate the victory to which he cussed at you, pushed you away, and said, get off of me, and you turned around, and you were the only one on the court because there was a foul call that you didn't know, and the game wasn't over. Did you really do that, Dad? Well, there were a couple hundred people there watching. <laughs> one is right here. Go ask them. It was 23 years ago. 23 years ago. Go ask him. That's what Paul is saying here. And then he goes further. After the 500, he appeared to his brother James and then all the apostles. James, the brother of Jesus. What would it take for a, a, a child to be convinced that his brother, who seemed to always be better than him, actually was? Who never did anything wrong. Whose parents were always pleased with him was actually who he said he was. Go ask James if he'll go to coffee with you and talk to him about his testimony of the resurrection of his brother. 
It's absolutely historical. It's central. G.K. Chesterton once said this, the believers in miracles accept them rightly or wrongly because they have evidence for them. (laughs) Disbelievers in miracles deny them rightly or wrongly because they have doctrines set against them. Fascinating thought. David Hume was a Scottish secular skeptical philosopher. He had a doctrine against miracles. In fact, he wrote a work in 1748, a short essay called Of Miracles, and Hume vigorously argued that one can never rationally believe in miracles because there's always more evidence that one did not occur. Right? Nature will normally and virtually always contradict the reality of a miracle. Prove that it happened. Well, you can't because it was a miracle. So if you look at nature, it's always going to disprove that miracle. But Hume kind of opened the door to this fact that, you know what would cause a miracle to be believable? If a greater miracle affirmed the first miracle. And folks, that's what Paul does at the end when he says, last of all, he appeared to me. The miracle of the resurrection was verified by, to me, an even greater miracle, which is what happened to me. And it's powerful what he says. He says, he came to me, the least of the apostles. I was untimely born. By the way, that's the word from which we get aborted. I was just not anything to the church. I was a dead outsider. I was not like the others. I am unworthy to be called an apostle. Why? Well, he says, because I persecuted the church. Acts 9, right? At his conversion. Remember when Jesus appeared to Saul, what did he say? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Because I was persecuting the one that Jesus came, the ones Jesus came to set free from death. I was killing them. I'm unworthy. I'm the least. I'm, I'm a, I was a self-righteous, murderous man. We see Paul's passion in this. That's why it's fun to study his letters. Can you imagine with me just how, how much lust for power that man had before he met Christ? Imagine if you stood against him in his pre-converted self, what he would do to you. Imagine how unafraid he was of burying you. Paul says, I was what I was, then the resurrection happened, now I am what I am, and the grace of God toward me has not proven in vain. And once grace confronted my life by means of the resurrection, I've worked harder than anyone since that day to declare the power of the resurrection. Not that I'm saved by my works, but the the grace of God was so powerful that all I want to do now is every part of my life is a working out of a fixation that I now have by the Holy Spirit, which is that resurrection happens. Paul says the greatest evidence to me was what happened to me. So, folks, the middle section of this set of verses, the resurrection is absolute. I was working through it this morning, kind of going through it one last time, and I feel this need to say something additional. I feel like when, I, when you preach every Sunday... I know, sometimes I know, sometimes I don't know, that there are things that a lot of you wish we would talk through. You wish that the sermon would address things. It may be things like reconciliation. It may be things like guilt and forgiveness. But it may be things about cultural ideologies and how they do or don't fit with the gospel. It may be all sorts of things that you need to hear. It may be that you want a word about anxiety 
or you want a word of hope in the midst of depression. I understand. It's all piled up when you think about the ministry of the word. But I will tell you, you need this, period. Period. This is the center of the center of everything you think you need actually meeting your need. Tim Keller, he said in his book, Reason for God, he said, sometimes people approach me and they say, I really struggle with this aspect of Christianity or that aspect of Christian teaching. I like this part, I don't like that part. He said, I usually respond with this. If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all of what he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether you like the teaching of Christianity or not. It's whether or not he rose from the dead. And so that's the last thing I want us to do, just to let Paul give a great argument. It's pretty philosophical. It's actually rather circular. But starting in verse 12, he's going to give an argument about the implicational reality of the resurrection. So verse 12, if Christ is proclaimed as dead, then how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? He goes on, if there's no resurrection from the dead, then he can't have been raised. And if he wasn't raised, then what are the implications? And I want to point to you five things that are in these verses. Five implications of if he didn't rise from the dead. First, Paul says, our preaching is in vain. We should stop talking. Every preacher, including Paul. It's a vain exercise we're doing right now. Secondarily, he says, your faith is in vain, or it's futile, or it's empty, whatever word you want to use. It's pointless. Don't say that you like the example of Jesus, and you want to be like him. No, you do not. He is not good. He was mad. He was a liar. If there is no resurrection, there is no Jesus to believe in. Your faith is empty. Third implication, God is a liar. That's what he says. If Christ was not raised, then God didn't do what we say the scriptures say that God did. So that means God's a liar and you can't trust a manipulative, deceptive God. So third implication, God's a liar. Fourth implication is kind of heavy. At least we feel it maybe differently. Toward the end of our verses, the implication is this. Those who have died, they're dead. They have perished. That is all. That's what he says. Stop hoping. Stop your silly wishing something good for them after life. That's what he says. They're dead. Fifthly, what's the implication of the resurrection not being true? We, of all people, of any faith system, across the face of the earth, across all history, are the most of all people, to be pitied if the resurrection did not happen. Look in verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, think about it. If in Christ, in this life, we have hope only, ready for what he's saying? That's not hope. Remember how chapter 13 ended? Now these three things remain. What are they? Faith, hope, and love, they remain eternally because they're from God eternal unto eternity. They remain forever and ever. So if there's hope in this life only, guess what it's not? Hope. It's not biblical hope. 
So if there's no resurrection, we of all people are the most to be pitied. Can I ask you to feel this for a second? We means you, if you call yourself a Christian. What are you doing here? You know how many Sundays you've wasted? You know how much money you've wasted? Do you know how much time you've spent memorizing things that's been wasted? Do you know how much false meaning you've felt when you had emotions attached to some song that you sang somewhere with another group of people? Do you know how much of a waste that has been? That's what Paul's saying. And then he looks at himself, but he also looks at a guy like me and says, hey, Jim, ever since you were in high school, you felt called into ministry. You have been a failure by every definition of what you should give your life to. You have wasted your studies. When marriage was hard in your master's degree, you, you wasted those early years doing something you thought that was going to prepare you to do. You wasted it. That's what he says. And then thirdly, he, he really says about himself. And I heard a very powerful sermon this week in which one of the pastors said, you know, Paul does not have to tell anyone why he's the most to be pitied. All he has to do is take his shirt off and turn around and let them see the scars where he received one less than 40 lashes multiple times for standing and defending the centrality of the gospel. He doesn't have to say a word about why he's the most pitiable person in the history of man. Just look at his back. So Christian, I just want to ask you, do you live... Have you lived this past week? Have I lived this past week believing in the whole gospel with the resurrection at the center of it and letting it implicate everything you've touched or thought or done this week? That's the implication. If it's true, everything changes. Nothing you do is in vain. You're going to live forever with Jesus in a righteous, redeemed earth. If it is not true, the implication is stop doing what you're doing. It doesn't matter anyway. I was at a missions conference. We were a church plant in Pennsylvania. And so I got invited to speak at a, uh, preach at a missions conference. And then the, there was a luncheon after the service in the fellowship hall of this church. And every missionary this large church supported had like two minutes to explain to the congregation what they're doing with their money and why it was important. And I was like number 22 out of 24. It was, a, it was like a horrible hour. I preached that morning. I was glad they put me at the end of it. I'm not real good in those settings I, I, as far as just like schmoozing in the church, I guess you'd say, or whatever. And it came around to me, and the closer we got to what I was supposed to say, I wanted to be like, listen, we're a church plant 45 minutes up the way, and we believe in the resurrection, and if we don't, it doesn't matter. Like, I don't know what else to say to you. What, what, if it's not true, what are we doing? Am I supposed to outdo the person that just went before me and say, no, really, we deserve more? of your church's mission tithe. We're seeing better things happen than they're seeing. Uh, let me show you. We have an accountant that's shown just how good of stewards we are and that we're not wasting the resource. What are we, this is a waste of time. This is the dumbest thing ever. I don't want to be a part of this. Unless the resurrection is true. I want to, close up with the most powerful verse of all. I've skipped it sort of. It's one of the implications of thinking about the resurrection not being true, but put your eyes on verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. 
You're still in your sins. But if I'm a Christian in Corinth and I understand what the apostolic gospel is, then wait a second, wait a second. My sins were put on the cross of Jesus. And Paul says, yes. In Colossians chapter 2, I wrote, your sins were nailed to the cross with him. In a letter I'm going to write you in a little bit. 2 Corinthians 5, I'm going to say to you that he became sin for us so that we would become his righteousness. Yes, you're correct. John the Baptist, when he came, he said that Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Yes, he did. The book of Hebrews is going to make the case that Jesus is the great high priest who offered the once and for all final sacrifice for sin. What do you mean we're still in our sins? Well, how do we know God received that offering for sin on the cross? How are you supposed to know for sure it was acceptable? So go back with me to the Old Testament sacrificial system. Think about the Day of Atonement. Think about what the priest would do. The priest would take the spotless lamb. The priest would lay his hands on the lamb. And it would be the way in which the guilt of all of Israel's sins were put onto that perfect spotless lamb. Before he would make the offering, we of course know that the priest had to be prepared himself. He had to do his own offering for sin. He had to be in his holy dress. He had to wear his ephod. He had the turban on his head. The turban said, holy to the Lord. Leviticus tells us that if he went into the Holy of Holies to offer that sacrifice and it didn't say holy to the Lord's, he would die in an instant. We read in Exodus 28 that the priest's outfit was so ornate that one thing that was not to be excluded was the bells on his robe. Exodus 28 says this, the bells were there so that his sound would be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord and when he comes back out so that he does not die. Almost like God needs a forewarning that something that's not perfectly pure is about to enter his presence. In other words, here's what it looked like. The bells would help the people understand that the priest was going to go into the dark place on their behalf. And that as they heard the bells receding and going away, there'd be silence. Would God receive the offering or not? Would they have their sins atoned for or not? Would they be still in their sins or not? And then they'd hear the bells again. And what did the bells mean? He didn't die. God received the offering. And what would the priest say when he came out? It's the same thing we say in our benediction. It was what Aaron was told to tell God's people. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Lift his countenance and give you his peace. You are at peace with God. You're not still in your sins, but make sure you come back next year. And the year after that. And the year after that. Now fast forward to the cross of Jesus. That's the only sacrificial system that the disciples would know. Jesus dies on the cross, and what does he do? He goes into the dark place where no one else can go with him. All the things the Bible says he would do, he was apparently doing. Here's the question. What were they thinking when for three days they couldn't hear any bells? He's dead. The offering's not been received. We are still in our sins. What is the resurrection if not the bells ringing again? And he comes back from the dark place. And what do the disciples instantly know? The offering was received. We're no longer still in our sins. And there's not even a system of sacrifice we have to go through every year anymore. It is done. 
And what's the first thing Jesus said when he appeared in that closed room with those scared disciples after his resurrection? What did he say? Peace be with you. If you believe in the resurrection of Jesus, the implication is you are no longer in your sins and you have peace with God. And he has nothing else to spend against your sin for it has been paid for. Do you live every moment of every day with that freedom and guiltlessness of just how perfectly loved you are? Do you take this Lord's Supper with the freedom of one who's been fully received by God because the offering was received and you are no longer in your sins? You cannot be in that place by faith unless the resurrection is in the center of what you believe God did for you in Christ. But if it is, it's actually what you need more than any other thing you think you need in any other trial you think you're going through because anything you think you need, patience, grace, mercy, forgiveness, restoration, it doesn't matter if the resurrection didn't happen. We have nothing to address those situations, nothing at all. Let's pray and let's take the Lord's Supper in thanksgiving. Father, we trust that you have given us a gospel that has been proven as absolute to make us acceptable in your sight. And we believe that the resurrection, by your spirit convincing our hearts, happened historically and proved all the things that the scripture said were necessary for you to receive us. Would we rest on Jesus? Would the implication of it be huge for your people right now as we take the Lord's Supper? And would it be huge for your people in whatever we face in the week to come? For those of us dealing with monotonous work situation, would the resurrection change the monotony? For those of us dealing with conflict that we're afraid won't be resolved, would the resurrection change how we believe conflict will never, never win the day in the end that we've been reconciled with you so we can reconcile to others? Would it implicate everything we do? Would we be like Paul that he wasn't looking to believe in the resurrection, but the resurrection happened to him? Would we believe that it's possible for those that we don't think would ever believe the gospel? You have the power. Because the resurrection is true. Would you receive honor and glory and praise this day as we believe in the implication of what you have told us is in the center? In Christ's name we pray. Amen.